to Free For All Fridays. Today with special guest host Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. That's right. I am Deb Hutton in for the vacationing Amanda Galbraith this afternoon for Free For All Fridays. Thanks for joining me. And I got to say, for a usually quiet, sunny Friday, we have a lot happening. As you just heard in the 12 o'clock news, there's been a major decision out of the Supreme Court of the United States on abortion, and we're going to talk about that in just a few moments. And after the 12.15 break, we are going to talk about Doug Ford's new Ontario cabinet. It's actually out of the corner of my eye. I see it's still happening. 30 members, including the premier, being sworn in. So we'll have a, a liberal political strategist to maybe balance off my perspective and point of view on this cabinet after 12.15. But right now, let's start with major breaking news out of the United States. Of course, that is the Supreme Court decision which overturns a Roe versus Wade, which was the constitutional protection for abortion that had been in place for nearly 50 years in the United States. There were cries of joy and anger after the Supreme Court ended this constitutional protection. And this is the sound of gathered crowds outside the Supreme Court in Washington this morning, just moments after the high court announced its ruling. Definitely, folks, on both sides of this decision, uh, no surprise whatsoever that the Democrats, led by uh, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House, and, of course, a high-ranking Democrat in the United States, had this to say this morning. This is deadly serious, but we are not going to let this pass. A woman's right to choose reproductive freedom is on the ballot in November. We cannot allow them to take charge so that they can institute their goal, which is to criminalize reproductive freedom. So Nancy Pelosi starting the uh, clock ticking on efforts for uh, elections this fall. She says right now states are saying they can arrest doctors. What is happening here? What is happening here? A woman's fundamental health decisions are her own to make in consultation with her doctor, her faith, her family. Not some right-wing politicians that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell packed the court with. There was also a tweet this morning that really caught my eye. It was from uh, former First Lady Michelle Obama, and she started out the tweet by saying, I am heartbroken today. I am heartbroken for people around this country. I am heartbroken that we may now be destined to learn the painful lessons of a time before Roe was made law. Joining us to unpack this a little bit, to tell us what it means, if anything, for those of us north of the border is Daphne Gilbert, professor of law at the University of Ottawa Faculty of Law. Daphne specializes in teaching criminal and constitutional law, including courses in criminal law and procedure, American constitutional law, and advanced sexual assault law. Daphne, welcome to the Free For All Friday. Hello. So why don't you just give us your uh Pricey of what actually was decided this morning in the United States Supreme Court. Yeah, I can tell you I was crying tears of sadness today, not tears of joy. Um, so the majority decision is exactly as we predicted. It's very, very similar to the draft decision that was leaked a month ago, um, both in terms of what it does, which is that it says there are no constitutional rights to abortion in the United States, but also in its tone, which is very uh, dismissive and um, very sort of degrading of, of Roe v. Wade. Can you tell us a little more, a bit more about that? 
Justice Alito, who writes the majority decision, says that Roe v. Wade was wrong from the start. It was badly written. It was badly reasoned. It was based on a bunch of false premises. This is what he says. So he basically says that the country has been living for 50 years under the shadow of a decision that should never have been made. And and the court is writing the balance now um, by putting the decision on whether to allow abortions into the hands of of state legislators. So does that automatically happen then? I'm not I'm not sure I understand that last point like that. It will entirely, as Alito said in the leaked um, uh document earlier this year, it will entirely rest with the political branches of each state? That's exactly right. Yes. So in states where we have more progressive governments, like, for example, New York or California, there will still be access to abortion. And um, and, and that is going to you know, continue. But in many states, uh, as of today, in fact, trigger laws will now come into place that ban abortion in some places completely. Uh, from the moment of conception. Yeah, the Associated Press this morning is uh, reporting that 13 states, mainly in the South and Midwest, already have laws on the books that ban abortion in the event, as happened this morning, that Roe is overturned. Another half dozen states have near total bans or prohibitions after six weeks of pregnancy, which is, as we know, often before some women know that they're pregnant. And in roughly half a dozen other states, the fight will be over dormant abortion bans that were enacted before Roe was decided and obviously have just been sitting there since then. So, yeah, it's, it's devastating. So in a very practical sense, what do you see happening now? Uh, you heard Pelosi's clip, I'm, I'm sure, at the beginning here of sort of mounting the fight heading into the fall elections. What do you see happening practically? I think we're going to see the, the federal government try to act to restore some protections for abortion, but it's going to be very difficult uh, because the Supreme Court decision is a constitutional decision. And so, you know, any law that the federal government tries to pass will automatically be challenged under the Constitution as well. It's, you know, this decision, you know, uh, really is the highest level decision that you that you can get. And uh, and no government can override the Supreme Court. So we'll see, I think, um, you know, it'll become an election issue, certainly in states. Uh, and certainly you'll see a campaign in states to try to move the needle uh, in those places where it's banned, at least to try to get some access um, through the voters. But because of Republican organizing of, of voting districts, it's very difficult uh, to secure wins in these southern republic states. I'm talking with Daphne Gilbert, who's a professor at law at the University of Ottawa, who specializes in criminal and constitutional law, including uh, criminal law and procedure and American constitutional law. And we're chatting about this decision this morning, not unfortunately very surprising, um, of the U.S. Supreme Court overturning Roe versus Wade, which had been protection for abortions for nearly 50 years. So let's let's move north of the border, Daphne, and, and want to ask a little bit about, uh, you know what, first of all, for our listeners, why don't you set the stage at, uh, as to where we are in Canada in terms of legislation? Because it's a very, very different situation. So just remind our listeners. It's a very different situation. Uh, we have no legislation around abortion. Actually, we're the only country in the world that does not criminalize abortion. It's treated as a medical service, so it's regulated by the provinces under health care powers, and it's uh, universally accessible across the country in terms of of it being legal. It's not 
necessarily equally accessible in terms of, of logistics and pragmatic concerns around where you live and, uh, you know, whether there's adequate numbers of providers. But in terms of the law, um, abortion is, is legal here and we have no criminal law at all that deals with it. And do you see anything changing in that regard? I mean, there have been cries over the last number of years for us to have legislation enshrining protections in law at the national level. Given what has happened, do you see anything changing here in that regard? Certainly not immediately. We have right now a prime minister who is expressly pro-choice and has said that uh, he will act to protect abortion rights in Canada uh, I think the, the longer-term issue is that this is a huge moral victory for the pro-life anti-abortion movement. Uh, and our anti-abortion organizations here in Canada are heavily funded by their American counterparts. And I, I think you'll see a real uptick in, in, in propaganda around stigmatizing abortion. Abortion is already a very stigmatized thing that a, a lot of people you know, really struggle with, with, with feelings of shame and uh, around being public about abortion. And I think that increase in stigma is definitely going to be something that, that a shadow that is cast from this decision into Canada. Daphne Gilbert, Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa, we really thank you for your time and your perspective on a major decision coming out of the United States. Thanks so much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we are going to chat about Doug Ford's new cabinet. Uh, I look out of the corner of my eye. I see on our sister station, CP24, that the swearing-in is still happening on the front steps of Queen's Park. But we will be joined by Lindsay Maskell, a liberal strategist, to chat a little bit more about what's happening right now. This is Free For All Fridays with special guest host Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the Free For All Friday show. Amanda Galbraith is off again this week on vacation, but she shall return and and I'm sure share all of her adventures. Uh, Those of you who follow her on Instagram or Twitter, she has shown us lots about where she's been traveling, and so I'm sure she'll have that to share. As well, later in the show, speaking of travel, we will be speaking with the mayor of Halifax as part of Amanda's cross-country checkup, looking at each of the provinces and territories and and the best place to visit in those uh, jurisdictions. So we look forward to visiting with the mayor of Halifax after the 1245 break. But right now we have what you can also consider breaking news, although it was no surprise. Uh, currently happening on the steps of the Ontario legislature at Queen's Park is the swearing in of Doug Ford's first of his second mandate cabinet. And joining me to talk a little bit about that this afternoon is Lindsay Maskell, political consultant and former advisor to Premier McGuinty. Lindsay, welcome to Free for All Friday. Thanks for having me. So I'm just going to take a second here, Lindsay, to kind of lay out what has been happening. As I said, the swearing-in is actually still taking place, watching on our sister station at the corner of my eye. But the (laughs) Doug Ford cabinet take two, I guess it's not just his second cabinet, but his second mandate take one cabinet, is 30 members, up from uh, 28 in the last go-round. That, of course, includes the Premier, who himself is the Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. 
Lots of faces, not only still in cabinet, but actually staying in their same portfolios. I think about Stephen Lecce, who will stay as education minister, Peter Bethenfalvy, who will remain as minister of finance. He had only been in that job for a short period of time, taking over from Rod Phillips when he stepped down. Caroline Mulroney staying in transportation. Kinga Surma in infrastructure. Uh, Greg Rickford, Northern, Paul Calandra is uh, going to continue to be the House Leader, Minister of Long-Term Care. Steve Clark, Municipal Affairs and Housing, of course, an important portfolio. He stays put. Doug Downey, the Attorney General. Uh, Vic Fideli, Monty McNaughton, Jill Dunlop, uh, they are in the portfolios of uh, uh, economic development and labor and college, respectively. And then we've got some new faces and new portfolios. The one I think we'll probably chat a little bit about, Lindsay, is is the Premier's nephew, Michael Ford, who takes over as Citizenship and Multicultural Minister. Graydon Smith, who's out of Perry Sound, Muskoka, takes over as MNR. Neil Lumsden, new minister from the Hamilton area, Heritage, Sport and Tourism. Michael Kersner from York Centre here in Toronto takes over for Solicitor General. And, of course, that... uh, portfolio was vacated when Sylvia Jones this morning was uh, elevated to the Minister of Health and Deputy Premier taking over from Christine Elliott, who retired. A few more we can talk about, but Lindsay, just give me your take. What do you think this cabinet says? What do you think it, uh, it means for the people of Ontario? Well, it does say business as usual, right? The the large majority meant people thought what was working was working well. And so with the big change with health and deputy premier, uh, the premier is definitely sending a message of stability. Uh, that's a big, important portfolio. So let's not make any other big dramatic changes. Things were working. So um, why do something fairly unsettling if it's unnecessary? Even though the start of your second mandate, especially when you've been given a bigger mandate, um, it is the time to make difficult decisions. And the premier did make a few of those today uh, with Lisa McLeod being out of cabinet and uh, 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 Ross Romano, but from Sault Ste. Marie. But he also had some great new uh, pickups. Uh, on election day that he really did need to find some find some space for them. So yeah, I do think it's a message as uh, continuing, get, get it done, as he would say, continuing to get it done with the team that he had and just the, you know, small additions. And those small additions are not probably that upsetting to the existing, um, to the existing caucus because there wasn't any really big shakeups. So you, uh, without any big changes, you don't rock the boat that, that has been, uh, steady as she goes, what I would say is the message delivered today with this cabinet. Yeah, certainly I, I, in my quick rundown at the top of, uh, of this segment, I, I didn't mention those that were let go from cabinet. Nina Tangri, who has indicated to the premier that she's going to be running for speaker, which will be an interesting race to watch when the throne speech, uh, is announced and the house comes back. Uh, Ross Romano and Lisa McLeod, uh, Romano, uh, more recent member of the team and of cabinet, but Lisa McLeod, of course, having been there for a significant number of of years and a significant number of years in cabinet. Uh, Were you surprised by that? I I wasn't surprised. I mean, it has been clear that there was some tension and, uh, you know, her being moved in a few portfolios and not having had any kind of standout moments where we have had some other ministers that have really performed well. Uh, There was also always some rumors of some tension um, so I wasn't surprised, but there's also not, you know, we have to, I'm sure with a bit of time, we'll have some look at the geographical breakdown uh, of this cabinet. 
and it does leave some uh, it does leave a big gap in the Ottawa area for sure. Yeah, I mean, uh, Mary Lee Fullerton, I, if you had asked me to put money on a, on a minister who might not have made it into this, <laughs> the second mandate round, it might have been her instead of Lisa. She is from the Ottawa area, so she obviously remains in cabinet. Um, Stephen Lecce, any surprise there that he stays in education? Um, I'm not actually, I'm not surprised. He's been a big, uh, big supporter and uh, carried a difficult file for sure. Um, but it is a message about that, you know, that, when you think about heading into negotiations with the teachers, uh, this tells the, tells the public a little bit about the approach, right? And Stephen Lecce is known as a gifted communicator, uh, having done that role as the director of communications for Prime Minister Harper and being a, being, it being about an outward communication, uh, ac- you know, exercise with the public and with teachers and with, but mostly with parents, right? Uh, as they undertake the negotiations coming forward, um, doing a take, doing a change there would have sent a bit of a could have sent a positive message. Um, I think it sort of says you know same same as usual. So any of the tension between Minister Lecce and the teachers continues, but they will see these negotiations as a, a public facing communications exercise more than uh, you know the the nuts and bolts of negotiation. So one of the, the Premier's key messages throughout the election campaign was that he wanted to make sure he had policies and decisions that meant that he nor any other Premier who would follow him would ever have to make the kinds of decisions that he had to make during the pandemic, regardless of what the next pandemic or the next crisis looks like. So things like increasing hospital capacity, making sure that we don't have the bear covered when it comes to personal protective gear uh, that he found and shouldn't have been the case after SARS and those sorts of things. So did you you see anything in this cabinet that would say that's exactly what the premier's doing to, to meet the commitment that he made during the election? Well, the um, it's it's tough because I mean a different uh, different government may have a different lens, and there may be uh, you know the next challenge that comes our way that would say we weren't prepared for that either, right? So, uh, in terms of the healthcare challenges and long term care challenges, particularly. Um, uh, in the healthcare portfolio, I would say with with making a minister who people believe has performed well uh, and will be, you know, uh, is is a good move for that message. Um, the long term care one makes me a bit nervous in that about meeting that commitment, right? Because um, you know we have uh, both spent <laughs> spent a lot of time as staffers in at Queens Park. And the house leader job in the government, business of government, and the time that takes is a big job. So having Paul Calandra both as um, as uh, as house leader and as minister of long-term care, that's the one that makes me a little bit nervous about this. We still have seniors without air conditioning in their long-term care homes. There's a lot of big reforms that need to happen, and all governments over decades share in that responsibility. Uh, and that that's a big challenge I think people want to see addressed. So that makes me a little bit nervous to have that as a shared portfolio. But I do think sending a sending a message of we want to you know the big uh, the big promotion of the day being a focus on healthcare um, says that. But one other thing that might seem like a minor thing to uh, to some watching, but is an interesting addition, is adding immigration to Minister McNaughton's portfolio, because. When you look at labor training and skills development to add um, when we're having a global, uh, you know, supply shortage of labor shortage, 
of workforce availability. That's actually a great addition and a, and a smart play to be able to integrate those and be thinking about immigration from the standpoint of, uh, of labor supply. So that is a positive signal, but I, the, the counter to that is the long-term care one makes me a little bit nervous. Lindsay Maskell, we got to go. Thanks so much for that insight. And I'm sure we will chat more about this cabinet as the day goes on. He's a magic man. Free for All Fridays continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Good afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton in for Amanda Galbraith, who's off for a couple of weeks, enjoying some well-deserved vacation time. Coming up at 12.50, we're going to talk with Mike Savage, who's the mayor of Halifax. That will be installment number four, or stop number four, on the Cross-Canada Road Trip, where we chat every Friday with a mayor of one of each of our 13 provinces and territories and find a little bit out about their city and what there is to do and see and, and participate in when you're there. But before we get to that, let's talk gas prices. If you're heading away this weekend, if you're heading up north, out east, down south, wherever you're going, obviously with the price at the pumps is a concern. Earlier this week on Wednesday, uh, U.S. President Joe Biden called on Congress to su- suspend the federal gasoline and diesel taxes for three months. Now, this makes him uh, the sixth of the G7 countries to take a look, if he's successful through Cong- Congress, to take a look at some form of gas tax holiday. The U.K., Italy has both taken this approach. Germany has lowered their gas taxes. France has offered a consumer rebate. And Japan has uh, given a subsidy to wholesalers. But that will make, if successful, Canada the only country in the G7 who will not have done some form of gas tax break. Joining us this afternoon to talk about this is a very popular Dan McTeague, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, and of course, the uh, person who runs gaswizard.ca, our very popular site to tell us where we can get gas and what's going to happen. Welcome to Free For All Friday, Dan. Uh, good to be here, Deb. Thanks for having me this afternoon. Well, so let's let's talk, first of all, before we get into the specifics of a tax holiday or some form of relief, let's talk about where we are with gas prices today in terms of the specifics, but also where you see the trend heading. I think uh, we're in the, well, we're obviously in the $2 range uh, pretty much across the country, some above, some slightly below. Tax differentials account for much of that. Uh, And I think we're going to be range-bound in this area for the next week or so until uh, summer really kicks in, uh, and we get uh, refineries saying they're having trouble keeping up with demand, and we uh, we see the usual effects of uh, things like hurricanes in the U.S. Gulf Coast to um, you know whether or not there is uh, there is a sufficient amount of uh, energy uh, to go around, not just of course in North America but in other parts of the world. And so we're to a large extent really driven by. Uh, external circumstances, even though Canada plays a very important role or potentially could uh, were it to uh, release some of the uh, massive reserves it has for both uh, natural gas and oil, but uh, for want of killing pipelines in this country, we're a, uh, a small bit player. And, and I'd like to spend a little bit more time talking about that in a couple of minutes. But what is happening then throughout the country? So we're going to talk about a potential for a national um, response to this. But throughout the provinces, for example, in Ontario next Friday, I believe, we get a bit yep. of a gas rebate happening. What else is happening throughout the other provinces? 
Uh, well, other provinces have taken measures that involve either rebate or direct uh, decreases in their taxes. Newfoundland dropped seven cents a liter. That's a, nation, uh, a part of the country which uh, is, uh, you know, very hard pressed as far as finances. They did something. Quebec offered a rebate uh, of up to five hundred bucks uh, that could go to pretty much anyone, even those who didn't drive. So that'd be interesting how they uh, they manage that. There must be an election coming there. As you mentioned, Ontario will be dropping uh, gasoline 5.7 cents a liter. That works up to 6.44 cents a liter with HST. Um, Alberta, of course, being the big one, uh, dropped gas taxes back in the beginning of April, a total of 13 cents a liter plus GST. That's 13.6 cents a liter. And, of course, British Columbia, uh, which offered what I thought was a pittance, uh, 100 bucks off your rebate uh, from your insurance. So not a lot to really you know, shield you against the 220 that you're paying compared to a buck 50 this time last year in that province. But yes, governments have, oh, you know, in varying degrees at the provincial level, tried to do something while the federal government, of course, is, uh, well, continues to uh, put more pressure on prices, uh, having you know, on April 1st increased carbon taxes uh, in this province, two and a half cents a litre here in Ontario. And, of course, the Conservatives federally are calling on the Liberals they have for months to either cut gas taxes, uh, lift the GST from gasoline, suspend the carbon price, or the $0.10 a litre federal excise tax, all ideas that that could be considered by the federal government. What about the argument – sorry, Dan, what about the argument that when you do this as a government – the gas companies come in and sort of fill that room. So you take it down 10 cents, they put it up 10 cents. Any truth to that, given how much you watch these things and how closely you watch these things? Not at all. And in fact, the fact that we are watching, and I'm not the only one, there's others that are doing what I'm doing, um, you'd be able to tell very quickly who's ripping who off and who wasn't passing it on. Uh, Look, the best example we have is what I saw in Newfoundland. Prices dropped 7 cents a litre. The government had proposed it. Within a day or so, the price had dropped 7 cents net. Now, the market fluctuates, so that sometimes gives people a bit of a false impression. Ditto for Alberta. Uh, That's an argument that I would have made back in 1997, 1998, when I wrote a report on gasoline pricing, saying it had happened in 1992 in uh, New Brunswick. But it took months for everyone to catch up and realize they'd been ripped off um, because there was no one benchmarking gas prices way back then. And so... You know, since about 1998, uh, it's pretty simple to call who and whoever offside and who's making what. So I don't buy that argument, and I think the evidence more recently with tax uh, taxes dropping on fuel has in fact passed on. In the case of states, though, Deb, my concern is if the cons- if the problem is that your demand is exceeding supply, dropping gas prices, as laudable as that might mean, apart, apart from revenue shortages, and you'll have to cut somewhere you're likely to increase demand uh, and thus contributing to an even greater problem uh, and, you know, really miss the uh, the intended purpose of the uh, the tax price or uh, the tax cut. So I, I think it's a very serious situation. We're dealing with a supply crunch, not a demand problem, but in fact, supply is not meeting demand and there's a whole host of reasons for that. So I said we would turn to this, so let's do that now. It's a great segue. Dan McTigg, uh, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, is joining us to talk about gas prices and the the fact that if uh, the United States is successful, if President Biden is successful in, in taking a gas tax holiday, Canada will be the only national government of the G7 who will have not addressed gas prices directly. So on the supply issue, what can be done to actually, given the issue of pipelines that you addressed, what yeah. can be done to quickly get more supply throughout the country? Well, the second thing that the Biden administration is doing, which is well worth noting, is to remove the uh, uh, the restrictive 
regulations during uh, summer. As summer temperatures kick in, uh, temperatures get warmer, you need to switch and convert your gasoline uh, to uh, a more more expensive uh, uh, regulation or more uh, what they call a spec that is a little bit more expensive to make. You also uh, would uh, require, you're required to blend so much ethanol. All those things would not need to be done, and theoretically that would lead to a circumstance where there would be a greater availability of supply. The problem, however, is bigger than that, and it's not something that happened overnight, but we've seen three or four refineries closed in the U.S. Northeast, including one uh, that, uh, that played no small part in the U.S. Northeast market. By the way, that Northeast market I'm referring to is New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, Boston, and the like, Washington. The largest area in the world, concentrated area in the world that uses more fuel than anywhere else, even you can't even compare it to China or Los Angeles or anything like that. The loss of those refineries, uh, much of it due to regulations, uh, is the main reason why the United States continues to find itself short of supply. And uh, they co- they're compensating with other refineries. But as I mentioned earlier, they're running at 94, 95% capacity. They are going to break down. And so the, uh, the fact that the federal government here in, in, in Canada isn't willing to, uh, uh, to you know, help in any way about uh, you know, producing extra product uh, has taken a position of attacking, uh, finding ways to constrain uh, you know, uh, oil and gas, uh, and more importantly, uh, you know, regulate to the nth degree, uh, this, uh, the fossil fuel industry, I think, is uh, not contributing in any way, shape, or form to uh, uh, dropping prices. By the way, the biggest way in which we could drop prices for fuel in Canada would be to build a couple of pipelines or at least announce them, watch the Canadian dollar soar. Right now, it's costing you and I 36 cents a litre because we are no longer the petrodollar as we were in the past. But that's not a short-term fix, Dan McTigg. No, the announcement, however, would uh, would go a long way to addressing that. The mere fact that you were about to do this. Remember, it's always a forward market. They're looking a month or two ahead. If you could say, uh, wave a magic wand and say, hey, we can get these things up and running, uh, I think it would, uh, it would take the speculative... Uh, uh, you know, the speculative element out of oil and gas prices and uh, perhaps lead to, uh, uh, you know, a calming of, of prices, uh, bring down of prices. The mere fact that you can displace, you know, the 2 million barrels a day that the world is short and we're relying more vulnerably on countries like Ven- uh, Venezuela or uh, Iran or, uh, in this case, Russia to supply uh, might also have the, the, the proper effect uh, of reducing... Uh, or in strengthening the value of the Canadian dollar. Remember, you're going to build a pipeline. Dan McTagg, I'm sorry, we are going to have to go on that very negative note, but thank you for giving us some insight as to why we're paying $2 plus at the tanks. Coming up after the break, we are going to chat with the mayor of Halifax and get a sense of his city and why it would be a great place to travel and visit this summer. Back to Free For All Fridays with special guest host Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back. Thank you for spending some of your, at least here in Toronto, beautiful Friday afternoon uh, with us. Coming up after the 1 o'clock news, I'll be joined by Matt Gurney, who's co-founder and editor of The Line, which is an online magazine, and Vaz Bednar, who's a digital policy expert and executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. And as Amanda does when she joins you every week, we will go through a series of sort of hot topics as they were this week and get their perspective on that. But right now, we are going to go to installment number four of the Cross Canada Road Trip. This week, we're taking a visit through its mayor to the city of Halifax. So welcome to Free For All Friday, Mayor Mike Savage. 
How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks. Now, is the weather in Halifax as beautiful as it is here in Toronto? Is it sunny? No, it's raining today, but it's the first time in uh, 30 years that it hasn't been sunny. <laughs> well, that's a good segue. I thought maybe the rain would uh, would be a negative kickoff to this. So, Mayor Savage, tell us why do we want to visit your city of Halifax? Well, um, first of all, you, you're talking to a bunch of mayors, and you have to be careful with mayors. You can only believe about two-thirds of what they tell you because they get very wound up about their cities. Um, but you can believe me. Uh, all right. Just, uh, well, Halifax is a special city, right? We, people love to come here, and they love to visit. We, obviously, we have, um, we're a welcoming city. We've been doing it well and doing it uh, a long time. Um, but it's a city with a lot of life, a great downtown um, you know, we have the most bars per capita of any city in the country. Uh, beautiful waterfront, great places to eat. But we also have many other communities throughout uh, the region of Halifax that have a lot to offer and some of the most beautiful natural landscape that you will uh, find. And then really unique neighborhoods in places like Dartmouth and Fairview and Sackville. And, uh, so there's, a, there's a, quite a variety. We're, we're a large municipality, and I always tell people that we just have an unbelievable downtown, uh, but so much more. So part of the unbelievable downtown are those steep steps that you've got to go up from bottom to top. I've never noticed those. I think it's almost <laughs> flat. We're, we're going to put escalators in from the harbor all the way up to the uh, to the citadel. Uh, no, well, yeah, you know what? We have a, you know, we're like some other great cities like St. John's. We, uh, you know, we've got some hills, but we're not going to flatten them out. It's part of the charm. It, it was actually, we spent uh, a couple of days in your beautiful city last August mm-hmm. and uh, stayed at a hotel right across from the Citadel, and so it was beautiful. But to get oh, yeah. to those great bars and restaurants, it was fine going down for dinner, not so great coming back up. But well, I, I do want to talk to you. I will say I had some incredible meals in Halifax. Right. So give us some insight into some of the gems. I know I had my own, but you uh, tell us well, what you think about the so great restaurants. Any sensible mayor is not going to pick out specific restaurants because there's so many. I think I always tell people when they come here for meetings that just walk out the door and you will find, um, if you're in downtown Halifax or Dartmouth, you'll find an amazing place to eat or drink. We have some of the best restaurants uh, in Canada. We have some who've been around for a long time. And, of course, we have uh, some new ones, quite a variety. We have, obviously, awesome seafood, the best lobsters in the world, uh, seafood chowder. We're also the home of the famous Halifax Donair, which is uh, a particularly uh, delightful concoction, which uh, actually people love. Um, and, of course, we've got uh, just a, a ton of options for people, craft beers, uh, local wines. Um, you know, the, the, whole, the whole sort of craft beer, cider, wine thing has just taken off here like it has in some other places. Uh, but we think a lot of innovation, a lot of technology, a lot of stuff gets hatched over one of our amazing patios. We think, we are, we think we're the patio capital of Canada. Well, I, but you're also not just a craft brew place, but you're Alexander Keith. 100%. Who, by the way, do you know what job he had back a while ago? I do not. He was the mayor of Halifax back oh. in the 1800s, Alexander Keith. So I have an obligation to him that I have to fulfill every now and then <laughs> um, as a previous mayor. Yeah, so we have- Well, because I'm not in politics, I'm going to tell you, I, I had great meals at the Bicycle Thief and at the Black Sheep. 
So I can say that without yeah, you having you know to feel what? like you've done it. Look, no question, right? So I was at the Bicycle Thief a couple of nights ago. It's amazing. Um, and they've got a new um, outdoor sort of beer garden now right on the water. You almost feel like you're in the Atlantic Ocean. Um, but we have other places. You know, I think the, the harbor front of Halifax is the waterfront is amazing. We've had people come for conventions that tell us the, it's the best waterfront in North America. Uh, and I'm not going to argue with them. There's some great ones. But I think to be able to come and have a meal, expensive, not expensive, have a drink, sit on a patio. Um, we've got you know we've got restaurants that have fire pits, and you can sit there with a blanket if it's a little bit cool. Uh, there's just a lot of very incredible options in uh, in all of HRM. So tell us uh, some things that might be happening this summer: music, festivals. What yep. in particular for 2022 have you got going on? Well, you know, you, Atlantic Canada is is music it's culture um it, it's it's in our blood so i'm in city hall in downtown halifax i look out my window we have a what we call the oasis stage we've set up in our grand parade which is our city square we're going to have music free music people like you know alan jo- alan doyle and um ashley mcisaac and uh baby no money or something uh like real big acts from around uh, the country, but also so many of them are, are you know, are local here. Uh, so, so that's a really kind of a, a big deal. We have a, we hit above our weight. We're proud of our Pride Festival, which is in July. We have, I think, the fourth most attended Pride Festival in Canada, which is not bad for a city. We're probably 12th or 13th in population. Um, we have two Lebanese festivals, an incredible Greek festival. We have Afrofest. We have a number of multicultural festivals. The buskers are, are a hit now that we're past COVID. We, the buskers here in Halifax just blow the doors off things. The Jazz Fest is a, a huge event. And I've got to say, Deb, too, that we have two international competitions this year. We have the Atlantic Sprint Canoe Kayak Championships on beautiful Lake Bunuk and Dartmouth. We'll welcome the world. And we're also the host to the World Sailing Championships uh, in uh, Halifax and St. Margaret's Bay. That's the uh, NACRA 17 and uh, the 49ers, which are really kind of crazy cool sailing races. So they'll be in Hubbard's area of HRM and St. Margaret's Bay. So this, uh, and of course, we've got the World Junior Championship, too. That's a little bit later in the year, um, but it'll be like summer in December when that happens. There's a lot happening in Halifax this year. Mike Savage, Mayor of Halifax, thanks so much for joining. I will say, just as the mayor is is departing the show, that uh, when we were there last year, one of the most important things we did was to take our kids to Pier 21, which, of course, awesome. is the, the immigration place. Yeah, yeah. so and, yeah. and really very, very moving. Thanks yeah. so much for joining us, Mayor. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. And as always, coming up in hour two, we're going to meet with uh, some panelists, talk about the issues of the last week, drill down a little bit on those, some serious topics, and maybe a couple of fun ones just for fun on a Friday afternoon. I'm Deb Hutton. Uh, this is the iHeart Radio Network. Joining us after this break will be Matt Gurney of uh, online magazine The Line, uh, also a columnist for TVO, and Vaz Bedner, digital policy expert and executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Science program. We look forward to chatting with them. Welcome to Free For All Fridays, today with special guest host Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
That's right. I'm Deb Hutton. I'm in for the vacationing Amanda Galbraith this week. I was able to join you last Friday as well, and it's, it's been a pleasure uh, in the second hour of the show to chat with some leading thinkers in, uh, in the country and get their perspective on some of the biggest topics of the week. So joining me this afternoon is Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line, which is an online magazine, and he's a columnist as well for TV Ontario, and Vaz Bedner, who is the digital policy expert and executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. Welcome to Free For All Friday. Hey, Deb. Thank you. Hey. So we're going to kick this off by talking about the meeting earlier this week that so many have talked about, which was a group of conservative MPs on Parliament Hill meeting with a number of the top figures in what has now been referred to as the original convoy protest and certainly involved in the pending uh, protest on July 1st in Ottawa. Let's hear from James Topp, who's protesting the pandemic mandates and, and who was one of the key uh, leaders of the group that met with Conservative MPs on Parliament Hill on Wednesday. Because there is a divide in this country I have never seen or experienced before, and um, I've only ever seen it in a war zone. Top, of course, is a veteran who has been marching across Canada to protest the remaining vaccine mandates and so refers to his experience uh, in the military. Also joined by uh, Tom Marazzo, who said there were similarities of what's happened here in Canada to pre-Civil War. James has been to a civil war. I'm not saying that that's what's going to happen here, but there's a lot of similarities that are, you know, pre Pre-civil wars around the globe, if you look at your history, we don't want that here. We're, we're going down a very dark path in this country, and uh, we need help. So in all, there were just over a dozen MPs who met with this group of, of I will call them protesters, uh, certainly organizers of the convoy and, and involved in the pending protest, as I said. Not all MPs stayed for the meeting, uh, but those who did uh, did speak to the media after. Let's hear from Conservative MP Jeremy Patzer, uh, who was in that group. You have support. You've had support all along. Um, it takes a lot of work and effort to get that message out as well his colleague, Bob Zimmer. So Bob Zimmer, Member of Parliament. Thank you, sir. Uh, honored to stand here with you in your 28 years of service and uh, saw the shameful thing that really happened to you. So I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here, and I'm going to say, is this anything more than just conservative MPs happen to be in opposition, happen to be in the Conservative Party, meeting with their constituents on Parliament Hill? Matt, let's start with you. You know what? I mean, you can make that case. Uh, parliamentarians meet with people all the time. I, I don't, I don't clutch my pearls about this. Like, I'm not easily outraged or scandalized. I think choosing to meet with these guys is probably, from a political standpoint, stupid. That doesn't mean I think it's beyond the pale. Like, I think anyone can show up, anyone can listen. I, I don't believe in guilt by association. I do think, though, if any politician is so naive as to think they will not be tarred with the broadest possible brush the first time or maybe even the next time in the case of some of these individuals 
that these organizers say or do something stupid, well, then again, that's on the fault of the politician here. Now, I, obviously, the conservatives right now have an interim leader. The interim leader herself had uh, met with some of the uh, the protesters during uh, the Ottawa uh, convoy protests. We don't know who the leader will be. I think most of us have a pretty good guess. But ultimately, what the policy that the party will choose to take on this is still to be determined here. I, I don't re- automatically default to outrage here. The conservatives can meet with whoever they want, and the voters in their wisdom can draw the necessary conclusions and vote accordingly. So, Vaz, is that what happened here? Because uh, when you listen to those two last clips that we played from Conservative MPs, really not just sort of saying I'm meeting with my constituents, but saying you have our support. I'm proud to stand with you. Is that really what, what as Matt says, is was happening? Well, I'm definitely with Matt in terms of the uh, risks associated, political risks associated for uh, the kind of follow-up associated with a meeting like this. Now, zooming out, government officials meet with people all the time. It doesn't mean that just because, as Matt pointed to, a meeting has taken place, that there's ideological alignment or agreement or that, you know, the ask that someone has put forward is going to go ahead and be implemented. However, when there's this kind of concurrent media commentary or kind of the story is that there was a meeting versus, again, that act of diplomacy, it's probably productive, even though maybe politically dangerous to have those open channels of communication, which it seems people are signaling uh, overall. So I'm not sure if that's useful, but that's sort of where my mind went. It's certainly a little bit more provocative than simply taking a meeting on Parliament Hill. So, Matt, you you watch this stuff closely and have for many years. Is this a shift in the Conservative Party, or is this simply something that a group of, of a dozen of them, though, of Conservatives uh, sort of are, are doing? Yeah, you know, Deb, I, I got to be honest with you. I, I'm not sure what the difference would be between those options, right? I mean, what we're seeing right now is a Conservative Party, as I was commenting just earlier in the week, it doesn't know what it stands for right now. And part of that, I think, is obviously, as I've already said, there's a new leader who's going to have to come in in the next few months and basically decide what the policy is going to be on these issues. But I think there is a more fundamental problem of an identity crisis in the Conservative Party of Canada. I would go so far as to say the conservative movement in Canada generally right now. I don't know what they stand for. And it is my job to pay attention to this stuff. And I can tell you the slogans. I can tell you the the talk talking points uh, in terms of actual core political philosophy. I don't know what the party stands for right now. So is it a shift or are we just kind of looking at a bunch of guys being adrift in a, in a leadership void, uh, all of them setting their own agendas because there hasn't been a message on down from the top yet. And then, Deb, just to further complicate things, I actually don't know if it's a bad thing for individual MPs to be kind of maneuvering on their own and setting their own priorities. I think what we're seeing right now is an absence of central leadership. But I also think you could make the argument that Canadian politics in general has too much censor, uh, central leadership. So I don't know. I don't know what direction the Canadian conservative movement is going in these days it's been sort of veering around in in hope of uh in search of a direction since stephen harper stepped down this might be the direction they're going in this might be a direction some of them are going in the party i've been warning for a while deb it might be too big to fit all under one tent i don't know if the conservative party is going to stay viable in the long term matt that's like a, a knife to my heart my friend that hurts no. i think <laughs> so, you know listen, i, I 
I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong conservative. I, I believe that we are good as a party when we unite around the things that unite us. And so I don't take um, sort of it lying down to say that, that there are too many voices in the conservative party for us to be not able to come together on this stuff. And that's why I, I played devil's advocate earlier just to ask if this is just a good group of, of MPs meeting with constituents because I actually believe it is harmful to the party. But Vaz, uh, just your take on what Matt said. In terms of incoherence contributing to a little bit of chaos and uncertainty associated with party, you know, party priorities, I think that spills over to people's uh, view of the state overall, right? And I know we might touch on later other failures. Matt, you've been writing about uh, the passport stuff and the passport delays. And when it comes to what Canadians expect from government overall, forget about that political layer. It just feels... Uh, more and more uncertain or as if sort of the state is leaving people hanging when uh, people need it the most. And just in the last couple of minutes, it's a bit of a, of a side issue to, to what we've been discussing. Uh, next week, of course, uh, Friday, we will not be having the free-for-all show live uh, because it is July 1st. And much of the discussion around these folks that we've been talking about has been what will they do next as it relates to Ottawa and specifically on July 1st. Matt, what do you see happening in Ottawa? Do we see a repeat of what we saw earlier in the year or is uh, are the police and this group both going to coexist peacefully you know Deb, i'm too shell-shocked after the last mm. two and a half years to make any predictions anymore like you ask me what i think is going to happen i just kind of look at you blankly and go i don't know i don't know what's going to happen i'm too <laughs> terrified uh, what i will say this though i think the defining feature of the february protests and i think this was not well understood at the time and i'm not convinced it's well understood now was not the existence of the convoy it was not the arrival of the protesters it was the massive police failures that allowed them to become entrenched both in ottawa and at the border crossings i don't think think we'll see those failures again and absent them we're going to have a very different scenario so we'll see what happens this is free for all fridays with special guest host deb hutton on the iHeartRadio talk network Welcome back. As Amanda Galbraith usually does every week at this time, we meet with a couple of thinkers nationally in this country to talk about some of the stories that have taken us uh, through the week. And we are joined today very happily by Matt Gurney, who's co-founder and editor of The Line, which is an online magazine and columnist for TV Ontario, and Vaz Bednar, who is the digital policy expert and executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. Welcome back to the show. And my apologies, Matt. Um, week number two for me in doing this, and my timing is still off. I think I like to talk too much, and I like to hear you guys talk too much. So if I cut you off again or Nick cuts you off again, that's why. I'm just not paying sure, attention me. to the clock. <laughs> I, would never bl- I would never dare blame Nick for anything. Never blame the guy who can cut you off He's on in a control whim. of your mic. So the second topic we're going to uh, delve into a little bit, of course, is is one that uh, emerged this week as a result of the Mass Casualty Commission, which is happening, of course, looking into that horrific Nova Scotia mass shooting back in 2020. And some of the things that have come out is some handwritten notes uh, by Nova Scotia RCMP Superintendent Dar- Darren Campbell, who wrote that the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky 
uh, had indicated that she had promised then Minister of Public Safety Bill Blair and the Prime Minister's office that the RCMP would release information related to uh, the weapons that were used in this mass shooting and that this information was going to be helpful in the government introducing some pending gun control legislation. So a, a bit of a PR move, and that's the accusation that has been made that the federal government in the form of either Bill Blair or the Prime Minister's office got involved in this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has been asked about this, this asked about the topic this week, and he said he still very much has confidence in the RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Yesterday he was asked if anyone had pressured her to release information related to guns. Absolutely not uh, on the pressure. We did not uh, put any uh, undue influence or pressure. It is extremely important to highlight that it is only um, it is only the RCMP, it is only police uh, that determine what and when to release information. Yes, I still uh, very much have support, have uh, confidence in, in Commissioner Lucky. He went on to say that this was the worst mass shooting in Canadian history and that we had a lot of questions about it. I got regular briefings on what we knew, what we didn't know, uh, and those answers continue to come out even as the public inquiry is ongoing, so families can actually learn uh, what happened, and we will continue to take responsible action. As well, Canada's Minister of Public Safety, Marco Mendocino, also spoke about this this week. I'm confident that there was an adherence to the principle of operational independence, which of course is one of the most important principles in the way in which we guide our relationship uh, between government and police. And a similar answer from Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair. I think the Commissioner has issued a statement last night and she makes very clear that there was no interference. She had a conversation with her subordinates and, and that's her job as the Commissioner, but there was no pressure brought to bear for, and, and no interference with the operational decisions of the RCMP. So we've got a local RCMP officer who has written at the time during a meeting that the commissioner of the RCMP uh, wanted to have certain information released, which would be of an operational nature, just in terms of uh, uh, evidence, and that that came from either the prime minister's office or Bill Blair. You've just heard the statements of the prime minister, of Bill Blair and of Marco Mendocino. Vaz, what do you think about this? Is there something problematic here? Is this a he said, she said what what's going on i mean i think the most problematic aspect is that this could have ramifications for record keeping going forward at the rcmp right so it's now this person's at least written word in terms of their best understanding of what was conveyed to them in a meeting and more and more in this remote distributed uh, way that we're working we're losing the records that government needs right uh, people are communicating informally there's text messages signal all these platforms and we're losing that kind of concrete uh, evidence in terms of what was said, what was the meeting outcome, what was relayed. So I don't doubt that those statements from what we heard that people have support for RCMP commissioner, but as to whether there was a political influence of, of some sort to kind of uh, coincide uh, a particular announcement with that investigation, it feels very disingenuous to kind of try to gloss over or not account for the fact that this person had that in their notes. Could that be, you know, a, a disinformation campaign? They're running from their notebook. I'm going to not interpret it that way and assume the absolute best intentions. So Matt, uh, my eight-year-old loves to play broken telephone. And 
if you if you know that with your kids, you, you whisper in the ear of the person next to you and then the next person and the next person, and you see when it gets around three or four people if what you said initially is what happened. Is that what happened here maybe? I don't think so. I think the Prime Minister and Bill Blair are covering their butts. I think they're in trouble. I don't believe them. Look, we had the earlier example, uh, the first example of the reporting on this came earlier in the week. It was from the Halifax Examiner and Independent Newsroom, which has been covering the uh, the tribunal, the inquiry into the aftermath of the massacre. They reported it first. They said the local RCMP commander had handwritten notes taken contemporaneously with a meeting where he specifically said he had been told a gun control announcement was coming that at that time had not yet been made he was told something that was not yet public was coming and now they're saying well yeah you know well no undue pressure was applied well i'd like to hear from the prime minister what due pressure looks like when actively managing an ongoing crime investigation to try and align the outcome with your political priorities here there is one possible way the government gets off the hook here but it doesn't save commissioner lucky maybe commissioner lucky knew that an announcement coming and and said yeah you know what i'll curry some favor with the boss maybe i can do a solid here maybe i can nudge the investigation along in a way that helps out the boss because you know what any chief of police in this country is political it's inherently a political position maybe she was looking for some leverage there that gets blair and trudeau off the hook but it should be a resignation or a firing offense for the commissioner and if it was coming from above blair at least has to go with her and maybe the prime minister here we cannot have the police operating as adjuncts of political parties in this country so i gotta say matt my perspective on this is pretty much a hundred percent what you just articulated and uh, i had said earlier the week in this week on on more in the morning that i think that all of the ministers in the prime minister's office are going to throw lucky under the bus unfortunately because i don't see how you can have notes taken at the time not recollected after the fact but taken at the time so clear that lucky made this comment you've got to lose somebody and if it's not going to be the political masters then it's got to be the rcmp what's your thought on that Vaz? that somebody has to kind of go down on their sword or take accountability. I definitely think there's some kind of accountability deficit here. I also think, frankly, for uh, myself as a lay person on this topic, it's even hard to appreciate why the types, specific types of firearms were so, was such valuable information to kind of coincide with a particular announcement, right? So it's almost like, mm, the 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 risk associated with this potential intervention uh, far seems to outweigh any potential reward that could have come with with coinciding an announcement that frankly is also very much aligned with public opinion polling would be my guess and activities that are happening in the U.S. rather than Canada. So the challenge here, Matt, just very quickly in the last few seconds that we have is that the the Parliament has risen question period, which is often the place to to put pressure on the government, isn't going to be happening. So are we going to hear any more of this or is it a done story? Oh, you'll definitely be hearing more of it from me later today when I finish the the article I'm writing on. I suspect there'll be others as well. But no, I I think you're on to something, Deb. I think the liberals might have sneaked across the finish line here into barbecue season. They could get a walk. 
All right. Well, that's a little depressing for all of us who think that this is the kind of thing that we shouldn't have happening. Coming up after the break, we're going to continue our discussion with Matt Gurney and Vaz Bednar for the next half hour. And specifically, we're going to hear from Matt about a story that he's been telling in the uh, papers of uh, or in the pages of The Line, which is an online magazine that he co-founded and is the co-editor of about passports and all of the woes that we're hearing about passports. We're going to talk about whether there is a huge problem, whether this problem can be fixed. Does this lie at the feet of the federal government? Is this a problem with the union who has now come out and talked about it? All those and more coming up after the break. Fridays continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I'm in. I'm Deb Hutton in for Amanda Galbraith, who is vacationing uh, in Europe. Actually, can't wait to hear about her uh, travels when she returns. And I'm joined this afternoon by Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line and columnist for TV Ontario, and Vaz Bednar, who is the digital policy expert and executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. So tons of stories coming out this last week. They've been dribbling out probably for the last few months. I know I had my own story way back in February about getting a passport, quite often getting it for your kids, because many of our kids, first of all, their passports only last five years if they have one, but many of our kids haven't needed a passport and may not have ever had a passport. And that seems to be one of the main topics. Uh, especially this week, Evan Solomon on the Evan Solomon Show had a woman on named Marie Tremblay, and she was camping outside a passport office in Montreal, waiting to get her six-month-old son a passport before they had to leave for a wedding. Let's uh, hear what Marie told Evan earlier in the week. I brought my tent, and I have a six-month-old with me. I can't do anything. They told me they're booked for today and tomorrow. They're closed Friday. They're closed all weekend. So I have a wedding to get to, and I won't be able to make it. She continued to say this. They can't, you can't even go pee for two days. You can't even go pee. They blocked us from going to the bathroom. So I went to pee behind the dumpster. And she said she was warm. She may be arrested if she continues to stay. No, they told us uh, they're booked for two days, that there's no point of waiting to go, and they might even arrest us if we want to stay here. So following a cabinet meeting on Tuesday, Karina Gold, who's Minister of Families, Children and Social Development of Canada, faced questions from reporters on the ongoing challenges. And she reiterated an announcement she made last week that outlined measures being taken to remedy the process. We've hired 600 additional folks since January in the process of hiring another 600. Uh, hundreds reallocated internally within Service Canada, bringing on folks from CRA, immigration. But that doesn't seem to have gone over that well with the union. Kevin King, who heads up the union of the uh, workers, most of the workers, at least in the passport offices, had this to say. They've been psychologically harassed. They've been photographed. Suspects are showing up on TikTok, social media, swarmed from their vehicles to and from their offices, and including to and from mass transit. So what's going on? Let me read one last little quote here before I throw it over to my guests. 
passports are completely within federal responsibility. It is entirely up to the government of the day to get this right or wrong. And it really isn't all that complicated. Countries have been issuing passports for centuries. I'm probably on my fifth or sixth by now. If there are major problems in our passport service, that lands entirely at the feet of the Trudeau government. That is our own Matt Gurney writing in the line. Matt, tell us your story about getting your kids' passports. Yeah, I was listening to the to the quote from my own column, and I'm thinking, what idiot said this? And then I realized, <laughs> wow, that sounds really familiar. Um, so look, uh, I will occasionally, as a journalist, just try to show up somewhere and see what is actually going on. And this week I had a good opportunity to do that because, Deb, for all the reasons you've laid out, passports are in the news right now. Plus, my kids need new passports, and we are planning on traveling this summer. My son's expired at the end of last month, and my daughter's expires in about five days, I think. So I was able to clear my schedule for one day this week uh, entirely and just head down there with a folding chair and camp out. I'm not going to lie to you. The experience wasn't horrific. Like, I came prepared. I had a folding chair. I brought a hat because I knew I'd be in the sun. I brought a good book. And I I spent four and a half hours before I finally uh, got through it all. But there are big, big problems here. And, you know, the fact that I, someone who has social and financial capital enough that I can take off the entire day, that I can, you know, my English is good enough that I can read through the bureaucraties and all the forms and get them figured out perfectly. The fact that I can uh, afford literally and fin- like financially, but also just in terms of family obligations to go, hey, I'm just camping out here as long as it takes here. It, it was a hassle for me, and they don't come much more privileged than I am. So I want to tell you uh, about a woman who I was in the line with. She was a new Canadian. She was there to get a passport for her daughter because they wanted to visit family overseas this summer. Her English was great for conversational purposes, but it was obviously not her for her first or natural language. But I was chatting with her, and she had all of her forms done, or she thought. After being in line for two and a half hours, Passport Canada officials uh, came out and began checking everyone's documents to make sure the documents were in order. And she was told to leave the line because her documents were not in order because she did not have a confirmed date of travel. The The passport office will only see you if you are traveling, I think it's within the next six or seven weeks. Uh, and you can prove that you are with either a flight booking or a hotel booking. This woman didn't have that, and she noted correctly that the Government of Canada websites plus the actual paper application forms are urging people not to apply for a passport until they have a booked travel date, but also not to book a travel date until they have a passport. It is completely Uh contradictory. And the guy in the line just basically shrugged and said, well, okay, well, we're asking people not to travel right now. You know, guys... Asking people not to travel when we were at the outset of a novel viral pandemic was reasonable. That was fair. It made sense. Asking people not to travel home to see uh, their family or to take care of ailing loved ones or to seize a business opportunity because the government of Canada can't get its, uh, well, I was about to say something uncouth, cannot get Mm -hmm. its act together is not acceptable. Telling Canadians just to suck it up and not travel this year because the government can't get passports out the door is appalling. And I want to mention something else and then I'll shut up. This is not an issue of overwhelming demand. 
It just isn't. Mm -hmm. The government has published the stats here. The actual demand for Passport Canada services is at about 55, 60% of pre-pandemic levels. This is not an issue of after two years, everyone's applying all at once. We are at just over half of pre-pandemic capacity, and the system is locked up and is in a state of collapse. So, Vaz, what's the problem? Well, I think it comes back to some of what we were chatting about earlier, right? Transparency, accountability. Uh, we we're being told that the government was formally advised of this deficit, right? This deficit in capacity in workers and that we needed to kind of uh, get ahead of this from a from a labor supply chain perspective. And we didn't. So it'd be good for Canadians to understand and appreciate if they're able to why we didn't do that and people have to be held accountable for decisions that were made and weren't made. Now, we're hearing from the government that they're, you know, uh, implementing as much as they can and making these changes and, and hiring people up. But the fact remains, people are uh, taking time they might not have. Don't forget, not everyone can take time off of work or that time is very costly for them in order to uh, go through this new process that's very frustrating and, again, comes back to Re reinventing people's relationship with the state. So I'm, I'm very embarrassed for Canada. I'm very uh, frustrated. I'm not personally affected, but that doesn't uh, mean that it's not affecting my own perception right now. So Matt, having been through this process, and, and I, I alluded to it earlier, I went through it in February so we could travel at March break with our kids and my, my youngest passport had expired. Um, and and I, like you, was able to take a day and drive to uh, Brampton, which is where I was able to get an appointment. So what is the fix? Very quickly, is there one? Not really. And we're, we're hearing from the government already, Oh, we're hiring 600 more people and we'll hire 600 more. You played one of those clips. That's the classic Canadian response to any challenge, which is that you don't talk about outcomes. You talk about inputs. Like how often have we heard Canadian politicians say, Hey, our government has committed $80 million over three years to address, you know, whatever the issue is. Three years later, they never come out and go, Hey guys, here's what our $80 million accomplished. So I don't care. Like they could hire a billion people. I mean, it would probably put a dent in the budget if they did that, but I don't care how many people they're hiring or re assigning or redeploying. I care that women like that woman I was talking to who were just trying to get a passport for her daughter don't leave lineups in tears because of Canadian government incompetence. Well said. I Listen, the one thing I saw uh, in reading through some of the articles this week, and there was a ton of them, was the notion that in a short period of time, we go to 24-7 and that we actually run the passports all night. We clear the backlog. I mean, that's what you would do in the private sector if you had a problem like this. You would just run throughout the weekend, run throughout the night, or at least go to midnight or something like that. Although I will say the union who complained that they had been sounding the alarm bell on this said that 24-7 would be unfair to the public and unfair to the workers. So I don't know, Matt, maybe there isn't a solution, uh, but I'd like to think we could at least try opening up. Back to Free For All Fridays with special guest host Deb Hutton on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And joining me this afternoon, Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line and columnist for TV Ontario, and Vaz Bednar, who is the digital policy expert and executive director at McMaster University's public uh, Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. So 
story this week. It was actually going to be my leadoff today. And then uh, the major story, obviously, out of the Supreme Court in the United States hit uh, overturning Roe versus Wade. But a picture caught my eye this week, and it was of uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh holding his baby in the parliament in Ottawa while he participated in question period. Let's hear what uh, Karina Gould, who's the Minister of Families, Children and Social Development, said uh, when she stood up to to respond to uh, Singh's question. Mr. Speaker, well, I just wanted to congratulate the Honourable Leader of the NDP for bringing uh, his little person in here. It's wonderful to see, uh, you know, children here as well. So Karina Gould, of course, uh, way back in 2018, when she was then Democratic Institutions Minister, made headlines and made history by bringing her infant into the legislature and breastfeeding her. And I will say at the time, I thought kudos for her. How uh, open and how progressive Parliament was to accept the fact that a young mother a young cabinet minister who was breastfeeding could actually do that in parliament. I thought, great. I had exactly the opposite reaction when I saw Singh standing there with his daughter in his arms during question period. And the reason I had that reaction is because I didn't think that child had to be there. There was no reason for it other than political grandstanding in my view. So does that make me sexist? Does that make me out of step? Do you agree with me? What's your thought, Vaz? I mean, I think something that's been great during the pandemic for new families uh, when people have uh, parents who are working from home is that they can build in a little bit more time with their little people. And I don't see this as being all that different from an opportunity to be with your child. Uh, it didn't seem like political grandstanding to me. I didn't notice it in in the course of everything. I totally, I do see your point around the, you know, there's not a direct sustenance need or, or a breastfeeding situation, but there's bonding and support and reminding Canadians that people have families and are trying to juggle work and their families and that it's not always easy, I think is really important, visual or not. Okay, Matt, are you with Vaz? You with me? Um, I, I have to confess, and this may make for lousy radio, I, I actually don't have strong feelings on this. I've, I benefited when my kids were quite young, including one of them who needed more help uh, at home than the other one, overcoming so, some early issues in life. I had the blessing of having a very flexible schedule, and I'm never going to begrudge any other parent out there who is able to do that. Deb, I do take your point. It felt a bit tokenistic. It felt a bit sy- symbolic. I get it. Um, and I think we should all be cynical about these things in our politics, but symbols matter. Um, I, I just I couldn't really get that worked up about it here. I I think so long as we continue to make the necessary progress on making sure women are able to breastfeed their kids in, at, at appropriate locations, which seems to be sort of the, the the pointy end of the spear on this one, right? Because every couple of months there's some story about some mother who's just trying to feed her infant being shamed somewhere. That's where I think the, the important part of this conversation is. As for a politician grandstanding, I'm, I'm way too freaked out on so many other levels of existential dread about everything going wrong in the world to worry too much <laughs> yeah. about Jagmeet Singh. <laughs> 
All right. Well, I won't belabor this too much, but Vaz, I was just, uh, my perspective on it was that, that in doing this without Mm -hmm. absolutely having to do this, without this being a situation of my child can't be cared for and I can't do my job unless this happens. I actually think he does a disservice to people like Gould. And I I think about Nikki Ashton, who was the uh, NDP MPP MP who brought her twins when they were, when they were very, very young into the parliament. I think he does a disservice to the progress that we need to make to support young parents and their kids in parliament. Well, look, the literature shows that in the workplace, when it's known that a man is a father, that uh, ends up elevating the perception of him, whereas it, when it's known that a woman is a mother, the opposite occurs. So again, back to normalizing it, reminding uh, th- that people of all genders have are trying to balance raising their families and having young people, I do think is fundamentally a good thing. I don't think it sets back the courageous work of uh, women in, in parliament who have taken that risk and that chance and that calculation to bring, bring their little people uh, to their place of work. The little people. All right, we're going to move on fast. I'm going to go back to you on this one as well, because I know this is right up your alley. So Alexa Mm. has gotten to the point where they can take just one minute of a person's voice. So I, I'm going to guess a voicemail or, or some, uh, some taped version of a person's voice and turn that into a living, a living storytelling. And this becomes, uh, potentially a huge deal for grandparents who have passed on being able to electronically, digitally tell their ch- grandchildren stories. Good idea, bad idea, creepy. Wonderful. What's your thought? I mean, so it's a wolf in sheep's clothing, right? We've long been stealing people's biometric voice data, most frequently through call center interactions. Uh, The biometric footprint of your voice is unique to you. Uh, People can infer your age, gender, weight, health from it. And now that it's so easily replicated, which we've long known and we've seen in kind of uh, cultural media situations too, I think many Star Wars examples are, are, are maybe a good example. It's a way it becomes normalized to us. So there's, I think, really important intellectual property implications, but also back to the noisiness right now of our media atmosphere, mis- and disinformation, the fact that we can fabricate, this is what it is, right? Fabricate someone's voice, imitate them uh, through sound, I think is very dangerous and should not be comforting. And if you want to hear the voice of your loved ones after they pass, I personally recommend more kind of authentic and true recordings if you can get them. So long way of saying uh, creepy and we should be cautious. This is about that grandma's voice uh, helping collect more information from you and, and helping platforms sell more items back to you, not to tell you a, a bedtime story. So Vaz uh, obviously has a very uh, unique perspective on this, but Matt, just is it something you would want your kids to have? No, never. It creeps me out. I have videos of my late grandparents uh, where I have their voice and I have listened to them at times just Mm. to hear their voice, uh, just to be comforted by that and reminded of that. The idea that a a computer would speak to me in their voice, I think, goes beyond creepy into the realm of violation. There will be commercial elements to this. I'm sure actors, performers, singers will license their voice for the benefit, the commercial benefit of their estates in the future or whatnot. I got no problem with that so long as it's a matter of active choice. My grandparents are dead, and I do not have the right to give any robot their voice. 
Matt Gurney, co-founder and editor of The Line and columnist for TV Ontario. Vaz Bednar, digital policy expert and executive director of McMaster University's Master of Public Policy in Digital Society program. Thank you both so much for taking the time to uh, support me and chat with me this afternoon. My apologies for our timing and cutting you off a couple of times, but I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, and I know our listeners will have benefited from your perspective on all of these topics of the week that we've been through. So thanks for joining Free for All Friday. Thanks, Deb. Thanks for having us. That's it for me. Amanda Galbraith actually won't be back next week as uh, it is July the 1st. Happy Canada Day well in advance. So she'll be joining you two weeks from today. You'll hear me next week on More in the Morning and maybe a little bit on the rush coming up after that. Have a great Friday. <laughs>